Today's reading is from Numbers, uh, chapters 13 and 14, and that's on page 149 of the Church Bibles. The Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. These are their names. From the tr tribe of Reuben, Shemua, son of Zechor. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Horai. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Jephunneh. From the tribe of Issachar, Igal, son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, son of Nun. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadil, son of Sodai. From the tribe of Manasseh, a tribe of Joseph. Gadai, son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamalai. From the tribe of Asher, Sithurson, son of, uh, Sithurson, son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of Bovsi. From the tribe of Gad, Goel, son of Machai. These are the names of the men Moses sent to explore the land. Moses gave Hoshea, son of Nun, the name Joshua. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev and on into the hill country. See what the land is like and whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many. What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees in it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit from the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. So they went up and explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rahab, towards Labo Hamath. They went up through the Negev and came to Hebron, where Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, lived. Hebron had been built seven, seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eshkol, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. Two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster of grapes the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. 
All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, We should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Japuna, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. So the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at a tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do you the very thing I heard you say. In, the, in this wilderness your bodies will fall. Every one of you, twenty years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land, I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. 
As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land you have rejected. But you, your bodies, will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness, until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. These men, who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land, were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they set out for the highest point in the hill country, saying, Now we are ready to go up to the land the Lord promised. Surely we have sinned. But Moses said, Why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up, because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you have turned away from the Lord, he will not be with you, and you will fall by the sword. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up towards the highest point in the hill country, though neither Moses nor the Ark of the Lord's Covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites, who lived in that hill country, came down and attacked them, and beat them down all the way to Hormah. This is God's word. Thank you very much, Emma, for handling that long reading uh, for us. Do keep it open before you. We'll be referencing parts of it as we go through. Let me lead us in prayer, though, before we get into it together. The writer to the Hebrews wrote, So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness. Our Father, we pray that as we will hear the Spirit's voice this morning, that we would not harden our hearts, and where they are hard and cold, we pray that they might be melted by the sunshine of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine for a moment being called to the deathbed of a fellow Christian brother or sister, Christian you've known for many years perhaps, somebody you respect and admire, and as you sit by their bedside with uh, their hand in yours, they turn to you and say, you know what, I wish I'd never been a Christian. Life would have been better without Christ. That's the shock of this passage that we have before us uh, this morning. If only we had died in Egypt, wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt, the Israelites say. 
Now, this is no small thing. It's no minor rebellion we have here. Israel are right on the verge of the promised land, and they treat God with contempt. They say, life would be better without you. We would prefer to be back in slavery in Egypt. And this is nothing less, of course, than than a rejection of God himself, the Lord, and his plan for them. What this passage records, then, is a a very big deal. And that's why there are two places in the New Testament in particular pick up this story and speak about it at, at great length. So Paul in 1 Corinthians says that this is an example and a warning to us. If you think you stand, he says, be careful lest you fall. And the writer to the Hebrews picks this up at even greater length, warning, exhorting, urging us not to follow the fatal example of Israel and therefore fail to enter the promised land, which for us, of course, we're talking about heaven, we're talking about the heavenly rest. So this account should shake us from any complacency we might have. And it is relevant for every one of us here who wants to enter heaven. We must, says the writer to the Hebrews, make every effort so that we don't fail to enter that rest. Now, how do we make every effort? Well, by believing, by trusting, by having faith in four things. And the first being God's plan. Believe in God's plan. That's our first point. Now, from the outset, these scouts are not sent to see whether they could or should enter the land. Chapter 1, verse 2 tells us, chapter chapter 13, verse 2 says, that God was giving them the land. The scouts were really sent out to sort of whet Israelite appetite. Manna will be off the menu for them, and on the menu will be uh, pomegranates and figs and wine. They can almost see the land from where they are, smell it, taste it. And after their 40-day, 440-mile round trip, the scouts return. And as promised, as God promised, it does flow with milk and honey, 1327. But, say the scouts, we've got a couple of concerns, the people and the cities. The people are powerful and the cities are fortified. And the Israelites are greatly disturbed by this report, and they start grumbling. Step forward, Caleb, who hushes them and says, let's go for it. Victory is ours. And later we learn, actually, that Joshua, although he's not mentioned in chapter 13, was nodding along in full agreement. But the other ten scouts spread a a bad report. Bad because it sows doubt, stirring up dissent 
and discontent. See, God has already declared his plan. He's giving them the land. But the ten think that they know better than the Lord. They don't believe in God's plan because they're pragmatists. So in verse 31 they say, We can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. So doubting the wisdom of God, they doubt the wisdom of God's plan. As if God doesn't know what he's doing. They should have known better from their time in Egypt, of course. It's clear that they doubt him from chapter 14, verses 3 and 4. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land, only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. I think we need to have some sympathy for them, at least. Those Israelite women in in the wilderness, life in the wilderness, or wave off your husband's and your sons to war, not knowing if they're going to come back. Believing the Lord's plan isn't easy sometimes. It can be very costly to obey the Lord. And so when Christ says to us, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, well, he, Christ doesn't tell us the details, but it doesn't sound peachy, does it? If your life is full of difficulty right now, then you might be asking yourself, is is this really a good plan for my life, following the Lord? Well, those who believe know that it is. They know that the cross comes before the crown. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who believe and who are being saved, it is the power of God. Christ is the power of God, and Christ is the wisdom of God. God's plan looks utterly crazy, doesn't it? Following a crucified man. But that is God's plan for your life and mine. It is costly but it is the only path to the crown, to the promised land, to God's heavenly rest. Which, by the way, is a place which is every bit as good as God has promised. A land without decay and disease and death, full of feasting and fellowship face to face with the Savior himself. So let's make every effort to enter God's rest, Let's keep believing in God's good plan. It might look foolish, but we believe that God knows what he is doing. Believing God's plan, believing God's power, secondly. Now, this is what distinguishes Caleb and Joshua from the ten scouts. The ten do not believe that God is powerful enough to grant them victory. That's why they spread their bad report. 
And it's a bad report, not just because, well, not just because it sows doubt, but it's also bad because it's highly unlikely to be true. The report that the land devours those living in it, which presumably is a claim to its infertility, but at the same time, they, they, they claim that the people who are living there and eating the fruit of the land are powerful. They can't have their infertile land and people eating plenty from it at the same time. It doesn't add up. And the claim that the people are of great size, a nation of basketball players, well, perhaps there is a grain of truth here. The Anakites, with their long necks, may have been relatively tall, like the Maasai people of Kenya, perhaps. But what of it? What if they are powerful? Hadn't God just brought them out of Egypt from under the tyranny of Pharaoh and the Egyptians? Well, sadly, this bad report infects the entire Israelite community. And it's shocking. A rejection of God's plan, now a rejection of God's power to overcome the enemy. It is tantamount to a rejection of God himself. And it is shocking. Israel is so close. Right on the verge of the promised land. Like that man on, the deathbed, on his deathbed. So close. But in the end, unbelief spurns the Savior. Thank you, Jesus. But this life and eternity will be better without you. Just shocking. As people saved by the cross, we Christians believe life with God outstrips life without God, both now and in eternity. And we believe that our God is powerful enough to help us to overcome every enemy and every trial on the path to heaven. In fact, the power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us who believe. Even so, we often overestimate the size of the enemy and underestimate the power of God. What has your week been like? Has the world dazzled you? Have you felt its pull like quicksand pulling you under, threatening to drag you down? And your own hearts, your own sinfulness, eating away at your heart, making you doubt whether you really are one of God's children. Also the devil whispering his lies. He says to you, you know you were much better off before you became a Jesus freak. You were much happier, weren't you? You were like all the people around you. You ever thought of going back? Taking hold of our inheritance is no easy thing. There be dragons along the way. But every obstacle, are you facing any obstacles at the moment? Every obstacle is surmountable by Christ's power. The Israelites snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. Let's learn the lesson. Let's make every end effort to enter God's rest. Let's keep believing in God's 
awesome power, his incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as his mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated at him at the, his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Believe in God's plan. Believe in God's power. Thirdly, believe in God's preachers. Before we um, get to what really is the pinnacle of this uh, passage, God wants us to just briefly notice the leaders that are involved. They're really uh, preachers, actually, because they speak the word of God to the people. See, if only the people had listened to Moses and Aaron, to Joshua and Caleb. Our Lord's plan for us is that we enter his rest. His power guarantees that plan. But how does he work? Well, he sends us preachers to help us stop, help us from falling into unbelief. And the problem comes when, when God's people begin to question faithful leadership. And here, well, the rot had begun to set in well before we get to chapter 13. It's there in uh, 11 and 12. But when we get to chapter 13, the evil spirit among the people bears its evil fruit. The people make a bad decision to rebel against God because they had a bad attitude. That's why. Now, the ten faithless leaders are an obvious foil in the story to the, to the two faithful, Joshua and Caleb. So first, Caleb says, we should go up and take possession of the land. We can certainly do it. And then Joshua in 14.9, only do not rebel against the Lord, he says. Do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. You see, they faithfully preach God's promises to the people. They say, God's promised us the land. God has promised to be with us. But there is a minority report. Disastrously, the people listen to the majority who leave God out of the, the equation. See, they just say, we can't attack those people because they're stronger than us. It is a pragmatic approach devoid of faith. Now, later we discover what God thinks about that pragmatic approach. 1437, the ten were struck down and died of plague before the Lord, whereas Joshua and Caleb survived, verse 38, to enter the land. Now, fortunately, we have a leader in our Lord Jesus Christ who has been found to be more faithful than Joshua, Caleb, or even Moses. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And he has given us, hasn't he, his marching orders. We know what they are. We know what we're supposed to be doing. We've got the great commandment and we've got the great commission. 
We're supposed to be loving God with all of our heart. We're supposed to be loving those around us. We're supposed to be loving the world. Those are our marching orders. There are essential lessons for us here. We must appoint leaders who have a spirit of faith, speaking and acting not from mere pragmatism, but from believing hearts. And if you're a leader of any sort in uh, this community here, this is a critical health test for your leadership. And for all of us, the writer to the Hebrews writes, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Insofar as preachers preach the word of God, we must receive their words as if God himself were speaking to us. Faithful leaders and preachers are part of God's gift. They're they're there to unite us as we move together, marching together towards the heavenly prize. Where Where you see a disunited people, behind it there'll always be grumbling and complaining and criticism. And where you see that, what you'll find is that people, maybe, maybe gradually, maybe imperceptibly, but will just start peeling off one way or another to their own destruction. On the other hand, where you have a people who are full of thanks and preachers and leaders who are full of faith, then what happens is that more flock towards that heavenly rest. So let's make every effort to enter God's heavenly rest. Let's keep believing in the God who speaks through his faithful preachers. And they will be those who urge us onwards to take hold of God's rest. Believe in God's plan, believe in God's power, believe in God's preachers, and finally, believe in God's priest. Now the words of the faithful leaders fall on deaf ears. Worse, the Israelites even talk about stoning them. And now follows a really significant moment. The Lord threatens to destroy the entire nation and to begin again with Moses. Twice God says that Israel have treated him with contempt. They have broken covenant through unbelief. And so the Lord says, 14.12, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But Moses intervenes. And by the way, this was always God's intention. He wanted Moses to intervene. Otherwise, why would he tell him what he was going to do in the first place? But Moses intervenes by interceding on behalf of God's people. As the mediator of the old covenant, Moses acts as a priest here. And he appeals to God's name and he appeals to God's merciful character. In effect, he says, he prays, hallowed be your name and forgive them their sin." And the Lord hears, and verse 20, 
he says, I have forgiven them. But none of them, except for Joshua and Caleb, will actually see the land. So in what sense does God forgive them? In the sense that he will not cast the whole nation aside. He will maintain his covenant with Israel, but not that present generation, the next generation. The present generation will face his justice. So they asked, didn't they, to remain in the desert? So that's what will happen to them for 40 years. One year for each of the 40 days they explored the land. They said it would be better to die in the wilderness. So that is where they will die, in the wilderness. They claimed it will be better to go back to Egypt. So where does the Lord lead them in, in verse 25 of chapter 14? Along the route towards the Red Sea, back towards Egypt, in other words. Nonetheless, Moses' priest-like intercession ensures that the new generation will experience the Lord's mercy. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now, we need to remember this morning that we have a better mediator, the man Christ Jesus. You see, Moses too forfeits his entry into the promised land. That's another story, but he too will die in the desert. But we have a mediator who has the power of an indestructible life, the mediator who lives to intercede for us. Christ is our great high priest, the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called Christians may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And it is to this great high priest that we must entrust our lives if we are to have any hope. Our belief in the plan, the power, and the preachers of God really distills down into our belief in God's priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what this means? If he is our priest, it means that he is interceding before us with the Father today, right now, in heaven. One of my uh, favorite Puritans was, was a man called Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin was born in the Norfolk Broads area around 1600. And he wrote many treatises or essays, including one entitled, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And as I try and summarize some of that uh, for you now, using the help from uh, the theologian Mike Reeves. Now, Goodwin wrote this essay because he said... Many are so taken up by looking inward at their own hearts that they scarce have Christ in their thoughts. 
Goodwin wanted us to look outwards towards Christ and not inwards, to see Christ's heart towards us sinners. And his concern was this, that now that Jesus has ascended into heaven, we feel that somehow he is just too exalted, too aloof. Once we feel he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners, once we could have related to him, but now he's in glory, he's just simply too exalted. We, can, we feel that we can have nothing to do with him. And Goodwin argues through the scriptures that Christ in glory is not aloof. And he has, if anything, even stronger affections and compa- compassion for his people. Knowing this, he said, this should hearten and encourage us to come more boldly to such a high priest, knowing how sweetly and how tenderly his heart is inclined towards us. Now, most of us are so full, full of thoughts of our own sins and failure, we wonder how on earth we're going to be able to look Christ in the face on the last day. Isn't that true? Well, Goodwin looks at every single post-resurrection appearance of Christ and he notices this. No sin of theirs troubled him except their unbelief. Now, the heart of Goodwin's uh, essay comes from Hebrews 4, verse 15, which says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. And Goodwin says that this text as it were, takes our hands and lays it on the breast of Christ so that we can feel his beating heart. And what we discover is that Christ's heart is not sour or distant or unconcerned or aloof from us. In fact, our sufferings And almost unbelievably, our sins, even they, stir his compassion for us. Jesus' first reaction when you sin is pity. Goodwin says, think of a father whose child has caught some loathsome disease. Your loathsome sins, my loathsome sins, move him more to pity than to anger. Mike Reeves comments like this. When you would run from him in guilt, he would run to you in grace. Goodwin wants to add a caveat at this point. He says that it's not as if there is a compassionate Christ who intercedes before a heartless father. 
No. Christ adds not a drop of love to the Father's heart. Every stream of love that flows from Christ flows from the Father's heart. It is moving stuff. And it should move us to believe and to turn from that loathsome sin of unbelief to take hold of our merciful and compassionate high priest now so that we might take hold of him in glory. So then, let us make every effort to enter God's rest. Let's believe in the God who plans our glory, who has power to take us to glory, who sends preachers to, preachers to help us, and above all, who provides that wonderful priest who forgave us, who continues to forgive us every day, who loves us and who lives to intercede for us. Here are Goodwin's dying words. On his deathbed, and it won't su surprise you that he did not say, I wish I'd never been a Christian. This is what he said. I am now going to the three persons with whom I have had communion. I am found in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law. I have the righteousness which is of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ cannot love me better than he does. I think I cannot love him better than I do. I am swallowed up in God. He then turned and urged his two sons to do nothing to provoke God to reject them. And now, he said, I shall forevermore be with the Lord. May we die with the same faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the extraordinary privilege that everything that was written was written for our instruction, our encouragement, our warning, and for our hope. And we thank you for showing us again this morning the, the great glory of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray above all that we might trust in him, and so we might not fall short, but enter the heavenly rest which you have promised and planned. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.